The text for our sermon this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Of whom, and this is Jesus, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The call the kids down front for their children's sermon. Well, for the last couple of Sundays, we've learned about Jesus being both our priest and the sacrifice for our sins. You see, when people worshipped God in the days before Jesus came, they could not worship God unless there was a sacrifice for their sins. So they offered a lamb, which was killed and burned. And the man who did this for them was called the priest. And this is how God's people worshipped for about 4,000 years. And then Jesus came. Now, for 4,000 years, God taught his people that, they, that he cannot be worshipped or served without a sacrifice for sin and a priest who can offer that sacrifice. Now, we worship God the same way. We have a sacrifice for our sins, which is the death of Jesus on the cross. And we have Jesus, who is our priest, who offered this sacrifice to God for us. Now, the verses that we just read, they're, they're a bit of a scolding. Do you know what a scolding is? For you, that's when dad or mom talk to you because you've done something wrong. They might say to you, how many times have I told you not to play with that? Or they might say, I shouldn't have to tell you this. I've warned you about it a hundred times. Well, that's kind of what God is doing in the verses that we just read. God is scolding people who don't understand that Jesus is the true sacrifice and the true priest. And the reason that God is scolding these people is because they should know better. You know, if a baby reaches to touch a hot pan on the stove, your mom will run over and stop the baby. Babies are too young to understand that touching something on the stove will burn them. And if the baby touches it and hurts its hand, no one will scold the baby. Babies don't know any better. Now, if you grab the hot pan on the stove and hurt your hand, well, mom will make sure you're okay first, but you're going to get scolded. She's going to say to you, you should know better. How many times have I told you stuff on the stove is hot? Now, the people to whom this book of Hebrews was written they were the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, even great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of people from the church. So they were like most of you. Your grandparents might be here this morning. Your great-grandparents attended this church. So for you to grow up not knowing about the Christian faith, not knowing the stories of the Bible and what the Bible teaches is a bad thing because you should know better. Now, you're still young and you're still learning, so this sermon isn't scolding you, but it is warning you 
That since you are here at church and you're going to grow up here your whole life, you will hear about Jesus and the lessons that the Bible teaches. So as you grow up, you won't be able to say, I didn't know. If you see a baby drinking milk from a bottle, wearing a diaper, lying in its crib, you would say that that's cute. Because that's what babies are supposed to do. But if you see a 12-year-old drinking milk from a bottle, wearing a diaper, and lying in a crib, you would never say that that's cute. You would say that that's ugly and wrong. And in the same way, when we see you learning about Jesus and the way of salvation, we can say that that's cute because that's what little Christian kids are supposed to do. But when you're a teenager or a grown-up and you still don't understand the way of salvation and you still don't understand that Jesus is your sacrifice and priest, well, that's not cute. That, that's ugly and sinful because you should know better. Now, we are going to pray and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind. The power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing Thy Word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in order to get the most out of our text this morning, we need to set up the context a bit. In our passage from last Sunday, Paul hammered home the point that Christ, the, the King of His church, is also the High Priest. And His sufferings prepared Him to sympathize with His people in a genuine way. As the Son, He is a High Priest in the order of Melchizedek. And His greatness is to be found in His nature, His obedience, and His suffering which elevate Him above the Levitical priests. Now, in, in the Levitical priesthood separated the priest from the sacrifice. In Christ, these two are united in His purpose, in His person. He is the high priest who offers an acceptable offering to God because He Himself is that sacrifice. Now, at this point, you'd expect Paul to start explaining how Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, he will do that. But he stops here for a bit and deliberately slows the speed of the argument down so that none of the readers are left behind. Perhaps what he's saying is hard for some to digest. And Paul's response to this possibility is kind of a stern rebuke, actually. He tells us that there's no excuse for any of his readers to be unaware of the doctrine which he has been explaining. And the only reason why what he has been teaching is hard for them to understand is because some of his audience is nowhere near as knowledgeable as they should be given their circumstances. So I think that's enough of an introduction to get us to our outline this morning, which is as follows. Number one, immaturity. Number two, ignorance. And number three, apostasy. So that first point, immaturity. I, let's flesh it out a little more and say unintentional ignorance is immaturity. All ignorance can be classified into two types, intentional 
and unintentional. Unintentional ignorance would be the state of someone who's never had access to relevant information. It's not that he wants to be ignorant. He just hasn't had the opportunity to access what he needs. Intentional ignorance is a willful refusal to submit oneself to be taught. They are clearly not the same thing. Now that first type of ignorance is really just another form of immaturity. You know, you wouldn't expect your five-year-old son to understand why you till your fields or why you opt for the no-till method. But you'd be pretty disappointed in him if he still doesn't know this by the time he's old enough to take the farm over from you. How could he have grown up in your household and not picked up the relevant knowledge or knowledge relevant to your family's livelihood? How is that possible? Immaturity in and of itself is not a bad thing under some circumstances. But even under those circumstances, it isn't supposed to be permanent. It's acceptable for a person to be immature given certain conditions, but not forever. The problem is when the immaturity continues past a certain point, and that's the condition of some of the people Paul is addressing. So in our text, he says, by this time, you ought to be teachers and you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. The ignorance rebuked in our text is not unintentional ignorance or a pardonable immaturity. The ignorance rebuked in our text is a blameworthy ignorance. These are people who are many generations deep in the church and therefore they have no excuse. The imagery of the passage is kind of graphic actually. You can picture a 40-year-old wearing a diaper, sucking on a bottle. It would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. You wouldn't feed a big hunk of steak to a baby you feed him milk. A grown-up man who needs milk instead of solid food, well, there's something wrong with him. He's either mentally off, or he's pretending, or he's physically ill. He either needs to see a doctor, or he needs a kick in the pants. Similarly, in the church, we don't expect a fresh-faced convert to understand all the doctrines of the Bible. I wouldn't ask a kid who has not had his catechism classes yet to explain to me the doctrine of the Trinity. But that's a far cry from someone who has sat in the church for two or three or four or five decades and still can't explain to someone the raw basics of his faith. But because the church is supposed to be, as Calvin called it, the school of God, then the remedy for ignorance is readily available. It's not as if no one has access to a Bible. It's not as if I'll have your hands cut off if you take a catechism book from my office. Here at Freedom's Reformed Church, we, we catechize our young people. Every one of you has been confirmed. We also make Sunday school classes available. And let me just make a plug here for Sunday school since it's right around the corner. Uh, in the adult classes, we're going through all the books of the Bible. Last year, we got from Genesis to Numbers, so we'll be starting in Deuteronomy this fall. And I can assure you that our class presents a great opportunity to learn about our Reformed faith. In our class last year, we saw the glory of God's covenant of grace in places like Leviticus and Numbers. No one can blame their doctrinal ignorance on me. We provide good access to biblical teaching, so you know, only the people who attend can profit, though. 
Now, a church like ours is remarkably similar, in a remarkably similar situation to the original recipients of this epistle. The Hebrews, like the members of a multi-generational Reformed church, could not legitimately claim unintentional ignorance because from their youth up, they were exposed to the teachings of the Bible. I believe that this is one of the practical functions of the long genealogical lists in the Bible. So when we read of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, we are reading of a man whose connection to the covenant is ten generations deep. I could look at our congregation and say Caleb, the son of David, the son of Melvin, the son of Paul, and when Caleb and Tony start having babies, we can add another chain to that generational link. And that leads us to our second point. There is no excuse for doctrinal ignorance because the church is intended to provide the remedy. And therefore, remaining ignorant is blameworthy. Now, sometimes there are mitigating circumstances which account for people remaining doctrinally ignorant. Uh, sometimes, for instance, a church may have subpar preaching. I'm aware of people who have attended church for 40 years and still couldn't explain the basics of the gospel if their life depended on it. And that's because their pastors have never taught them the doctrines of Scripture. But the Bible is quite clear that God abhors this situation. In Jeremiah 3.15, we clearly read that it is God's will for pastors to feed the flock with knowledge and understanding. And God curses pastors who do not feed the flock. In Ezekiel 34.2, God says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherd feed the flocks? And therefore... Ignorance under the circumstances of an unfaithful pulpit is still a culpable ignorance because it's not as if there's only one faithful church in the whole of the Western Hemisphere. You may have to travel a bit, but if that's what it takes to sit under faithful exposition of the Word of God, then that's what you should do. God has promised to provide His church with faithful shepherds. And therefore, doctrinal ignorance, whether intentional or unintentional, is not innocent. It is blameworthy. It's the result of apathy, ignorance or stubbornness or laziness and our text shows us that there is no room for apathy stubbornness or laziness we must advance in our knowledge and understanding to not make progress is to regress it is to step backwards and these backward steps lead to apostasy and that is our third point that intentional doctrinal ignorance is the threshold of apostasy what is apostasy well, in common parlance, apostasy is a formal disaffiliation with the church. A person announces, I no longer believe what Christianity teaches and I withdraw my membership from the church. Apostasy in the biblical sense is a falling away from or rejection of the foundational doctrines of the faith. And that may or may not result in a person disassociating himself from the church. Usually not. Now, speaking of foundational doctrines, let me say something very important. The heart of the gospel is salvation by grace, not by works. All religions 
and supposed variations of Christianity other than the early church fathers and the churches of the Reformation teach salvation by works. Now, they may add a few bits of nuance here or there, but it's all sleight of hand to hide the fact that they do teach salvation by works. This was the position of Judaism in the days of Jesus and the apostles. You can see it in the anger that Jesus provoked in the Pharisees, who were the strict legalists of the day. You can see it in their constant opposition to the preaching of the apostles and of Paul in particular. The Jews believed in salvation by works. This is why they hated Jesus and killed him. It's why they opposed and persecuted Paul everywhere he went. I recently saw a video clip of a rabbi mocking Christianity as a stupid religion. And he said, this doctrine that Jesus obeyed God and suffered for you, that, that's just stupid. He's a false prophet and he got what he deserved. So 2,000 years has not altered the opinion of the Pharisees of the doctrines of grace. Now let me give you a bit of background history here. Near the end of the Old Testament era, Judah went into exile in Babylon. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell of the return of some of these captives back to Judea. In the intervening centuries between the days of Ezra and the birth of John the Baptist, the Jewish faith became corrupted with all sorts of unscriptural traditions. This is why you see Jesus always rebuking the priests for putting their traditions of the elders above Scripture. Their faith was corrupted with all sorts of bizarre ideas borrowed from the idolatrous Babylonian religions, borrowed from witchcraft and numerology, Plus, they added all sorts of strange hair-splitting about the law. And the purpose of the hair-splitting was to obscure the clear teaching of the Word of God so that men could sin with impunity and still claim God's favor. And all these perversions of the Gospel were codified in their Talmud, which they follow rather than Scripture. Now, all that aside, the Word of God was still available. And therefore, no one had an excuse for doctrinal ignorance. Now, the issue that Paul is dealing with in our passage is ignorance of the doctrine of Christ's priesthood. And directly related to Christ's priesthood is the doctrine of salvation by grace. It is Christ who provides himself a lamb for the sacrifice. It is Christ who offers that sacrifice. And it is Christ who intercedes on behalf of those for whom the sacrifice is offered. So there is a very clear line, direct line, between rejecting Christ's priesthood and believing in salvation by works. And it is a causal relationship. Now, the Old Testament, which is the only Bible that the recipients of this epistle to the Hebrews had at the time, was full of statements that should have disabused them of the notion that salvation was earned by works. No one who had access to the Old Testament should have, in their wildest dreams, entertained a notion of salvation by works. Now, I want to give you a brief tour of the Old Testament's teaching on grace, and we'll do it by some direct statements and appeal to the narratives of the Old Testament. So let's start with Israel's exodus from Egypt. While Moses is on Mount Sinai, Israel apostatized and began worshiping a golden calf. Exodus 32 is very clear that Aaron was the ringleader. He didn't come up with all the ideas, but he was the ringleader in the corruption of worship and the ensuing debauchery. 
And there are two things that we learn about God's grace from this story. One, Aaron, the high priest of God, who was supposed to be the defender of the faith and guardian of the pure worship of God, he was not removed from his position. And this is certainly due only to the grace of God. Had he not utterly disqualified himself from serving as a minister of God's altar? And secondly, God did not forsake Israel in the wilderness as a result of this sin. I'm going to read for you the last verse of Exodus 32 and the first verse of Exodus 33 so that you can see what I mean. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. Now if you can read salvation by works into that, then I have some oceanfront property I'd like to sell you in the Badlands. The most noticeable seal of God's grace with the Old Testament church was their possession of Canaan. And God says in Deuteronomy 9.5, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no greater refutation of salvation by works in the whole Bible, in my opinion, than Deuteronomy 9. The whole chapter, all 29 verses of it, is a litany of charges against the church for rebelling against God's word. Over and over and over again, Moses says, God commanded X, but you did Y. God forbid Z, and you did Z anyway. And that's why verse 5 is so important. He's saying, don't fool yourselves into thinking that you can earn salvation because you've been rebellious since the day you came out of Egypt. In Jeremiah 4 and 5 and 30 and 46, while declaring the outpouring of divine wrath against the apostate church, God says, yet I will not make a full end. In other words, I won't wipe you out completely. What other reason could there be but mere grace? So there was literally no way a person could read the Old Testament honestly and come away from it believing that it taught salvation by works. The only works the Old Testament church ever did were rebel, murmur, make idols, worship idols, compromise with the surrounding unbelieving nations, and reject the righteousness of God. And this is why Jesus frequently rebukes the priests with words like this, Have you never read? And he says to the disciples, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. People this deep in the lineage of the church had no excuse to be ignorant of the doctrine of Christ's priesthood, which includes the doctrines of imputed righteousness and justification by faith alone. It is a small step from unintentional ignorance to intentional ignorance, and it is a smaller step from intentional ignorance to open, rebellious apostasy. And therein is the danger of ignorance. I just love Jesus. That is a lie from the pits of hell when it's heard on the lips of someone who will not be taught the doctrines of the Christian faith. Yeah, tell me about this, Jesus. 
What's he like? What did he teach? What did he do? You can't answer those questions without making doctrinal statements. So when a person says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you love Jesus, you might as well be talking to Satan himself because that's the very lie of Satan in the garden. Yea, hath God said? In other words, it doesn't matter what God said. Believe what you want. So I'll put it this way. Ignorance is just a less egregious form of apostasy. Central to the doctrine of Christ's priesthood is a clear understanding of the doctrine of sin. Now you'll find this to be the case if you start looking at any particular dogma of Scripture. The teachings of the Bible stand or fall together. Think, for instance, of the so-called five points of the Reformed doctrine of salvation, the famous tulip. If you attack the T, or the U, the L, the I, or the P, all the other points collapse. If you assert any one of these points, all the others are natural consequences. Truth is beautiful in this way. Now, as I was saying, a good, clear grasp of the doctrine of sin is central to a proper view of Christ's priesthood. Now, that would seem to go without saying. Why else would I apply to Christ and His sacrifice, His righteousness and intercession, except that I have nothing of my own to bring except sin? See, I'm not relying on my works, for as Paul says in Philippians, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. In other words, when we find ourselves willing to obey God and actually doing so, this doesn't originate with us or in us. It comes from God working us in us. And Paul further says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ that is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. There's a wonderful essay written by the 19th century Southern Presbyterian theologian Benjamin Palmer entitled, A Plea for Doctrine as the Instrument of Sanctification. And I just, I want to express my deep indebtedness to him for some of what I'm going to say. The knowledge of our sinfulness, what Reformed theology calls total depravity, is indispensable to growth in grace. And that's because the more profoundly we see our sinfulness, the more we will value grace, the more we will value Christ's perfect obedience. A natural fruit of a deep awareness of our sin will be humility. I mean, can we see the, the, the wickedness, idolatry, and hatred of God that is our heart and yet be proud before God on account of our so-called good works? Why, of course not. And the number one prerequisite to growth and knowledge of the faith is humility. You will not submit your mind to be taught unless you accept the fact that you don't know what is being taught to you. The second century church father Origen wrote, either because people bring too little zeal to the training of their minds or because they think they know before they've learned, it happens that they never begin to learn. Recognizing my sinfulness makes me humble, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and therefore willing to learn. And so we see that a low view of sin and a rejection of Christ's priesthood go hand in hand. Now I want to read for you a quote from a masterful theologian named Herman Hankel. I would prefer to just paraphrase this quote, but there's no way I could say 
what he says as well as he says it in as few words as he says it. So bear with me. But when the shining light of God's holiness and sovereign power of grace penetrate into the heart of God's elect child, and he sees himself standing exposed before the face of him who searches the hearts, then he hears thundering in his ears the awful sentence of Scripture. He sees himself as worthless, corrupt, depraved, incapable of doing anything good. And the words of the saints of all ages ring in his own heart. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is the living confession of the child of God. And when that confession grips his soul and he sees himself as he truly is, as God's word describes him, then with tear-filled eyes he can also see the cross. Only then, for in that consciousness of sin, he can see the wonder, the power of the cross, the mercy and grace revealed there, the infinite splendor and love of God manifested in that blood-spattered tree. And seeing this, he sees the wonder of sovereign grace, and from his heart arises a doxology of praise and glory to God, the God of his salvation. The apostasy Paul is warning against in our passage is one which rejects the grace of God. It rejects the grace of God and strives with all its power to build a righteousness of its own whereby it attempts to curry favor with God. It rejects the priesthood of Jesus because the priesthood of Jesus is established on the twin doctrines of total depravity and imputed righteousness. Now let's conclude by rereading the last sentence of our text. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now notice carefully that this text ties doctrine and practice together intimately. This is something the whole Bible does. What a man believes affects how he lives, period. And this is why doctrinal knowledge is so important. Never mind the fact that if God thought it worth revealing to us, we, we should think it worth understanding. That's certainly true. But we're talking about a basic, fundamental fact of life. What a man believes shapes his life. And so we see in our text that a man who cannot handle the solid food of doctrine, for that very reason, cannot discern good and evil. So think for a minute of the mainline denominations. They started with doctrinal apathy. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you love Jesus. Of course, they never bothered to define love or Jesus or believe. And within a generation, they were publicly denying the formal tenets of the Christian faith. Oh, our forefathers were well-intentioned perhaps, but they were bigoted products of their times. Doctrinal apathy resulted in doctrinal ignorance, which resulted in open apostasy from the gospel. And now they have come full circle. Not only do they deny the core doctrines of the Christian faith, but they also openly flaunt their immorality in the face of God and man. So we come to our earlier thesis statement that ignorance is just a less egregious form of apostasy. Let us pray.